Well, this week is the final week of Samson. So if you remember, Samson is chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, so before we dive into chapter 16, let me just give us a little bit of a recap in terms of how we should hear 16 as we get into it. Uh, remember, chapter 13 is the only birth narrative for a judge in the book. We have six cycles of judges, beginning with Othniel, then we have Ehud, uh, then Barak and Deborah, and then we have Gideon, then Jephthah, and uh, Samson, all of them starting with that phrase, uh, Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Samson, though, is the only one with a birth narrative. All the other judges we meet as they're already adults, ready to bring rescue. Um, it's also the longest narrative in the book uh, in terms of for uh, the judges. Uh, and Samson's character actually seems to be painted the worst. So Othniel, the first one, is the shortest narrative, and he gets painted the best. And Samson is the longest narrative, and he gets painted the worst here. Um, now, two places to go in terms of understanding the, the narrative of Samson, the way the author sets, sets this up. Uh, let me just show you two verses uh, so we can uh, get his theme. Uh, if you go to 13.5, uh, we're reminded about who this child was supposed to be. This is in the birth narrative. For behold, you shall conceive, he's talking to Manoah's wife, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head because the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And if you remember, the Nazarite vow is this external um, demonstration that you are set apart to God. And so this child was supposed to be uh, in the service of God for his whole life, right? In particular, what does verse 5 say? He's, his service is for, is to bring deliverance, right? Did you see that? It's to bring deliverance to Israel, uh, or at least begin to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. They had been under oppression by the Philistines for 40 years, <clears throat> and now this child is going to begin to bring deliverance. By the time you get into chapter 14, there's expectation, there's hope, because certainly now God will bring deliverance by this judge that's set apart. He's going to bring all this deliverance, but you quickly meet a guy who is anything but set apart for, for God. He wants to do everything in his own ways. In fact, if you caught verses 3 and 7 as Danica read them, uh, when he goes down to Timnah, he sees a woman, a Philistine woman, uh, who he's not supposed to marry, and he says, I want her because, the text says twice, she's right in my own eyes. Now, if you know the book, that's going to get picked up later in 17.6, and it's the very last uh, statement of the whole book that Israel did what was right in their own eyes. So here we have this judge actually personifying, living out what the whole nation is doing. He is doing what's right in his own eyes, yet he's supposed to be set apart to God. This exact same thing with Israel. They were supposed to be set apart to God, but they're doing everything what is right in their own eyes. So we have a judge who's supposed to be set apart to God to bring deliverance, but he's doing everything his own way, uh, from being coming unclean, making his family unclean, marrying a Philistine, just total, utter disregard for God and his ways. Yet, our key here to reading his narrative is in 14 verse 4, where it says, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord because God was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. 
So you have to ask yourself, well, what was from the Lord? Well, it's what just happened. Samson came to his parents and said, I want that Philistine woman. His parents say, no, you shouldn't marry her because she's not one of us, religiously. Not ethnically, but religiously. She's not under the covenant. You're not supposed to do that, and you're set apart to God. And the text says, the author tells us, that whole desire that was rising up out of Samson to go get that woman, the text actually says, was from God. So what we have here, in one sense it was from Samson, in another sense it was from God. What theologically would be called a primary cause and a secondary cause. And if you remember that quick illustration last week where I raised my hand, I said, who's raising my hand? Am I doing that or is God doing that? Well, technically God can stop me from raising my hand, but it's totally my desire to do that. And so the text here is teaching us very clearly uh, that even though God, uh, or even though Samson is disregarding God's law, it's actually God who's ordering the disregarding of the laws of God for the sake of delivering Israel. So I had the main point last week. I, I said it was this, that God orders the sinful ways of Samson to accomplish his mission of deliverance. In other words, Samson's sin cannot thwart chapter 13, verse 5. God had promised to deliver Israel through Samson. Samson's sin cannot stop that mission. Nor was Samson's uh, sin, uh, did it cause like plan B for God. As if he had to say, oh, I, really, I wanted to rescue Israel through Samson in this way, but because you're sinful, I'm still going to use your sin, but I'm going to go this route. That's not what it says. It says the very act of Samson having those desires and those passions and going after that woman that was from God. This is, the, this is a theme throughout Scripture, that God, the sovereign one who makes decrees, who rules over all things, decrees what shall be in what is called providence, actually carries out that plan by his providential hand, even using sinful acts. So the way the judge or the, the author ends his, this account in chapter 15, if you see it, if you go right to the end of chapter 15, where we ended last week, verse 20, and he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And if you go to chapter 16, the very last verse, uh, right at the end there, he judged Israel 20 years. So twice he tells us he judged Israel 20 years. Uh, that seems to be his way of saying these, these accounts. I'm going to give you two accounts. One's taking place in Timnah, one place in Gaza, but you're supposed to read them parallel. It's not that he did 20 years and then another 20 years stint, like he got you know, reelected or something. This is, this is one time. It's just you read it the same way. In other words, the point that God orders the sinful ways of Samson to accomplish his mission of deliverance is the same point from chapters 14 and 15 and 16 all the way through. Fair enough? All right. So what, what we're just simply going to do is go through the narrative of chapter 16 once again. I want you to see the theme. We'll just experience the text. And then we'll ask ourselves today, why do we struggle to live in the good of this theological reality that the author keeps trying to tell us? And it's throughout Scripture that God actually orders the sinful ways of mankind for our good and for God's glory, to accomplish God's mission. 
That is a theological reality we ought to love and cherish, but that is very hard to swallow. And so I just want to reflect on that a little bit today. But let's, let's go through the narrative and uh, see what Samson is up to uh, today. Uh, let's read verses 1 to 3 to start. Uh, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him at night, at, night uh, at, at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait until the night, the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. We'll pause there. Uh, so chapters 14 and 15 all take place in Timnah, which is much closer to, to Samson's hometown. Here, he's in Gaza, Gaza being a major city in uh, Philistia, uh, which is much farther away. It's, it's like the farthest southwest that you could go to remain in Philistine territory. But he's in this major city. Why he shows up there, we have no idea. He's just wandering through Philistine territory? We don't know. But we do know 14.4, which tells us that God is on a mission ordaining Samson's sinful ways in order to accomplish his mission. That much we know. But when he shows up to the city, uh, he sees two things, or we're told about two things. The first thing that we're told about, uh, not in order, is what they see, the people of Gaza. They see Samson show up, and somehow they already know who this guy is. So there's the stir about in the city, because, I mean, here comes the guy that this is like the, the Philistines' most wanted guy. Right? I mean, they, they already know of what happened in chapters 14 and, 13, or 14 and 15, presumably. How Samson had killed uh, 30 guys in a town to get those garments, remember, at that wedding? And then how he had burned up the grain uh, in, in Philistine territory, all the crops. And how he had killed 1,000 men with the fresh jawbone of the donkey at the end of chapter 15. Right? They know who this guy is. And if they, had, if they had cell phones back then, you know, there would be a community alert. One of those, ah, 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 stay in your house, he's been spotted. I mean, here, here comes the most wanted man, he's here. And so they go into action and they set, up, they set up an ambush. Now they saw where he went, and the text tells us right away off the bat that he saw a prostitute. This is, this is beginning just like chapter 14, verse 1. In Timnah, he saw a woman, and that ended up being his downfall that created all this stir of action. And what, what does this count as say? He saw a prostitute, and so he goes into her. Now, surely Samson probably knew about the stir of the town, what's, what's going on. He probably doesn't know about their plan, but, uh, you know, I don't know how this went down, but you can just try to imagine what the scene was like. You have all these men have now set up an ambush, probably outside the gate would be my guess. I don't know for sure, obviously. But cities in the ancient days would have, you know, be fully gated in. That's a place of security. A city without a wall is in trouble, right? They have no security. But the gate itself is the place of entry and exit. It's the place of security, though. So it's the place where a lot of politics is done. 
Um, and, but it's also the place where if you're going to hurt a town, it's, you destroy the gate because then it leaves them very vulnerable. But they know that Samson's going to have to go through there, so they're probably outside the gate. They're, sometimes they would set up rooms right at the gates where the, the soldiers would stand guard. Uh, but they've set up, and they've decided we're going to wait it out. We're just going to wait for him. We know he's going to have to come out of here eventually, and then we'll get him. This guy's going down. But sure enough, uh, Samson, uh, you know, he, he's always ready for a battle. He's ready for a sport, so he kind of come, comes out and... I don't know how in the world he lifts up the, the whole poles and the, the bars and all and the gates, but these doors uh, would be massively heavy. So as you put them on the shoulder and walk them around 40 miles roughly, so as you're talking about just, just the miraculous strength here that's being demonstrated through the hands of God. But I would imagine that this is quite the scene, actually. I'd love to talk with one of these soldiers afterwards, like what was going on in their mind. You know, I would imagine, I mean, if it were me, I, I struggle to get, like, today I actually have to move some fences, like chicken wire fences from our garden, and that, that's going to be a struggle. But when I pull, I'm going to, I would imagine this is quite the scene. And these guys that, that thought they were going to take out Samson, I mean, they're really wimping out. I mean, not really, though. I mean, this dude's massive. Whether he's big or not, we don't know, but... Something miraculous is going on. They actually, it seems like they just let him go, and he gets away. That's all the, all, all the author ta- tells us about this scene, not much. He seems to just want to let us know that trying to set up an ambush for this guy is not going to work. This guy cannot be stopped. So we'll move on to verse 4. Now uh, Samson goes to the valley of Sorek, and he loved a woman there whose name was Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him. See where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. We can pause there for a minute. The, The lords of the Philistines earlier in the book were told that there's five of them. So, I, again, I, we don't know where this scene happened, but you can imagine maybe it was at the marketplace, maybe it was at a religious shrine, whatever it is. But these five lords of the Philistines, these leaders of the Philistines, approach Delilah at some point. And maybe it's a little secretive. It goes something like, Delilah, what are you going to do when he leaves you? Just like he does all the time goes into one city, destroys our people. He's eventually going to leave you like he does everybody else. Now, you can either stick with us or you can stick with him and be kicked to the curb. Listen, this is our opportunity. You can be the one who gets us the secret. Tell us how his power can be broken. Now, remember that Timnite woman that he married. She was able to get the riddle. Maybe you can be that woman. And we, together, will give you roughly $19 million. You'll never have to worry about a thing. That is about the estimate that they figure 
uh, that amount of money would be in our day and age. So this is a massive amount of money that they're willing to pay. And Delilah is up for the challenge. I mean, sometimes money blinds you, right? $19 million to find out the secret, and she is up for the task. Verse 6. So Delilah says to Samson, Please, tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, we don't know when she finally gets the courage to ask him that or what the situation was. Was it over dinner or maybe it was after dinner? She's trying to you know, set the mood for the night. And, I, I, you know, I don't know if Samson is just duped at this point. You know, there's hormones are going and all rational thinking has gone. Uh, or if he actually kind of knows what she's doing, he's just going to have a little fun. She's kind of like that. He's just ready for the game, ready for the sport. Because after all, if you notice... Uh, she says, tell me uh, where your strength lies, how you might be bound. And look at verse 7. Samson says to her, if they bind me. Gives the plural. Seems to be that maybe Samson is playing sport. Almost as if to say, well, why don't you go tell them if they try this. So, verse 8. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now, Samson here, again, he is supposed to be a Nazarite, not touching dead things. Uh, the fresh bowstrings would make him immediately unclean once again. So this is the, the inner parts of the animal, and he's, again, toying with the clean and uncleanness. Uh, verse 9, Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, so in the house somewhere, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as the thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now, for me, this is, this is probably one of the scenes I'd actually really enjoy seeing, if I could go back and witness this. Um, I, I don't know when exactly how it unfolded, but as I imagine it, she says the Philistines are coming in out come these guys running from the, this inner room, and you got like Incredible Hulk type stuff, or, or not Incredible, was it a Hulk Hogan, the old wrestler, rah, ripping off the shirt. And, you know, he's just ripping off these bowstrings, and I'd like, to, I'd like to see what those guys in the inner room do at that point, or what they say. I mean, I don't know, I'd, I'd probably try to play it off, you know? You'd be like, all of a sudden, Hey, man, that, oh, that was a great game of cards in there. That was crazy. Did you see that hand? That was, man, yeah, dude, that was nuts. Yeah, I made the, man, it was so exciting. It made us all run out of the room like that. Hey, Samson, you're here. Dude, what are you, cool. That's all right, we'll leave you guys to yourself. What do we, I mean, what do they do? We're not told about any kind of battle. Now, I don't know what happened. 
What I would encourage, though, as you read these narratives, you really just try to stop and slow down and experience the scene, because these are real people. These things really happen. Well, at the first time, it doesn't work. Verse 10, uh, Delilah says to Samson, Behold, Samson, you have mocked me and told me lies. At which point you should read, uh, What? <laughs> who, who's lied here? Who's mocking who? Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new robes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snaps the ropes off his arms like thread. Again, this is, this is like deja vu, same thing happening. But did you notice in both of these accounts, who is doing the actual binding? It's Delilah. Okay, so she's actually the one doing this. Uh, presumably, it seems like both of those times when he's awake. So it's not, he, he knows what's going on by this point. But he breaks away again. Verse 13, Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks, once again, she's the one doing it, of his head, and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Now, if this one, this one notice how, how much he's playing with fire here, because it is actually the locks of his head, uh, that if they're shaved, he's gonna, God's going to leave him, and his strength is going to leave. And he knows that this is part of the Nazarite vow, because he's about to tell us soon. Uh, so he's really playing with fire here. Uh, but here, you know, we got strike three. So you would hope that the story would be over, but uh, Delilah's not done. Verse 15, she said to him, How can you say to me that I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. That, that, that language very much reminds me of uh, 2 Peter 2, where Peter recalls Lot, that Lot, Lot's uh, soul was tormented day after day, living among those lawless, lawless people. It's this idea that his soul is now being tormented because she, she just keeps trying to get this out of him. In fact, he actually uses the same language uh, from the, his Timnite wife. Uh, that, that she just keeps coming after him with this. So he's, he's vexed in the soul. Now, what do you think would happen if you were able to talk with Samson right at this moment? You know, grab a cup of coffee with him, and you kind of hear the story where it is so far. What, what would you tell Samson? Yeah, you'd say, dude, maybe it's time. Like, so, some relationships just aren't meant to be, you know? Like, like maybe we should move on. Plus, it's sort of like so obvious, Samson. Like, she's totally duping you. 
Now, we have a couple options. Maybe he, again, maybe he totally knows and he doesn't care because, you know, he just thinks this is fun. He'll be fine. He can, he can play with fire. He'll, he'll, he'll be it. He'll do it. Or he's totally blinded. His sin has totally, totally blinded him. He so badly wants what's right in his own eyes that he cannot actually think rationally. Well, I don't know, but he, you, you, I fully assume at this point he knows what's going on personally, but I could be wrong. Verse 17, And he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If, if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now, just notice when he reminds her of all that is on his heart in the Nazarite vow, he actually leaves out the, the aspect of delivering God's people. This is just about his strength. That's all he wants to talk about. Verse 18, Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart. She sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again. He's told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. Now, that is like, dude, come on, Samson. You just told her if your hair's cut? Now, the last three things you told her, she did it right to you. You told her if your hair's cut and you're going to go sleep on her, her knees because she made you? Dude, he knows what's up. He knows what's about to happen. He just thinks he can do it. He thinks he'll be fine. Continuing on, verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke up from his sleep and he said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. What a sad line. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Boy, what a sad part of the story. 13.5 He shall be a Nazarite from his mother's womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And here he is, squandered it all. And the, man, the man with all the tools to actually bring deliverance to Israel has totally squandered it. Why? Because his own passion for what is right in his own eyes. Now he's sitting in a prison, making flour, pushing the mill around without any eyes in. What a sad story. But... Chapter 14, verse 4. Chapter 14, verse 4 helps us because, yes, he had squandered it all, but the Lord, it was all from the Lord that he would actually be seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And there we read, verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And you should go, oh, Oh, I could picture uh, Isaiah going, oh, 
Oh, is he here? He's, I think he's in the, the kids. Because I thought about that. That's exactly who I'd picture. Oh, okay, all right. The hair's growing. Okay, I know where this is going. This, this, we got another scene coming up. Verse 23. The lords of the Philistines, now they gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For They said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, that ravager of our country who has killed many of us. Now, Dagon, the, the god of the Philistines, was said to be the god of the grain. Now, if you think back into earlier part of the story, what Samson did to their grain, remember, he burned up all their grain with those 300 foxes. So what's happening here, they're gathering, uh, celebrating their grain god, and the one who first destroyed the, the grain is now their prisoner. And so they think Dagon is the true god. Because he overcame this enemy, Samson. Now, as the reader, what is hopefully would stir our hearts is, one, we know the truth. I mean, we've been following the story. We know really what happened to Samson. God's seeking an opportunity. It's not Dagon didn't, didn't deliver uh, the Philistines. God handed Samson into the Philistines, right? Handed him over. And what we would want as we read that is the vindication of God's name. All right? Verse 25, when their hearts, now these are the, the people at the festival or the, the sacrifice, when their hearts were merry, they said, uh, they said, hey, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. We don't know exactly how. Uh, but they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there was about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord, and he said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me. Only this once, O oh God. Now, if you pause there, he's about to tell us why he wants God to strengthen him. What would you, what would you either expect or what would you want him to say? You'd probably want him to ask forgiveness from God. Or, you know, confess his sinful ways. That would maybe in part. But you'd also probably want to hear something. You remember when David goes up against Goliath? When uh, the Philistines in, in Israel are, you know, trying to go to battle. Phil, uh, the, this giant of the Philistine, Goliath, keeps shouting at Israel. David finally catches wind of it. He comes down. And the Goliath looks at him and is like, What are you sending out a dead dog to fight me? You remember what David says? I'm paraphrasing here. He says, look, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. I come in the name of Yahweh, the God of hosts. And he will deliver you over to me today. And I will feed all of your dead bodies to the birds. 
And all the earth will know that there is a God in Israel. And these people, referring probably to Israel, they will know that God delivers not by sword or spear. You see, David is he's concerned about the vindication of God's name. You've defied Yahweh, and God's going to hand you over to me. That's what you would want to hear out of Samson. No, God, rescue me here. Give me the strength that your name would be renowned. And their mockery of you right now would be put silent. But what does he say? O Lord, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. That's all he's concerned about. And yet, though Samson is thinking that way, we have 14.4 and 13.5 for us, knowing that God is still going to use Samson and his selfish desires to bring about his mission. Verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength. And guess what happened? You know it. This is one of the most famous stories in the Bible. The house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshol in the tomb of Manoah and his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. That line in verse 30, he had killed more at his death than whom he had killed during his life. You might wonder, is that a positive statement of the author, or is it a sort of a negative way of assessing Samson? Positively, it would be as if Samson, in one final moment of valor, sacrificed himself to bring about the deliverance of Israel. Now, you would think that if that was at all coming from his lips, oh God, give me strength this one time that I may fulfill the mission that you gave to me, 13.5, yes, I squandered it, but vindicate your name and help me rescue Israel now. But there's none of that. The other option is that this is actually more of a, a, a slam or a negative light of Samson, the one who had all the tools, who was meant to be set apart to God, he did better off dead than alive. He squandered it all. And yet, and yet, chapter 14, verse 4. God will order the sinful ways of Samson. And though Samson meant him for this way, God meant him for this. Right? And that, indeed, I think, is the message of the soul encounter of Samson. God delivers Israel by ordering the sinful ways of Samson. It's, it's a massive reality. Uh, it's been held by Christians throughout the, the centuries. It's taught throughout Scripture that God providentially arranges all things, even including sin, to bring about God's mission. Charles Spurgeon, speaking on the providence of God, uh, he, he once said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam 
does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. I, I love that quote because it's a nice illustration. You can do that today or tomorrow morning. We, we wake up sitting somewhere and you see the, the light coming in and you just see the little dust particles floating. Spurgeon says not one of those can move one atom this way or that way unless God decrees it. Now that's massive. Now if it's true, it's meant to comfort the church in incredible ways. And next week, actually, we're going to take a break from Judges and just spend some time thinking on the goodness of the providence of God. And we'll do that next week. Today, I just want to ask the question, why, why do we struggle? This is a reality that Scripture teaches throughout the, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, that God orders sin to bring about his mission. Last week, I quoted from, uh, from the Joseph uh, in, in Genesis 50, uh, verse 20, right? What you meant evil against me, God meant for good. You, you, my brothers, you intended this to hurt me, but God meant it for good. God does that with the king of Assyria. We see that with David again and again. Why do we struggle to live in the good of this? So let me just give you a couple things to think about. Because I think first we have to dislodge our wrong thinking so we can actually really fully enjoy this. First of all, I think it's hard for us to embrace something like this just because we, we simply don't understand it. Right? We, we don't fully get it. And there, you're not going to read anybody that can fully package it for you that you go, oh, that makes total sense. I totally understand it. But could, could you imagine you know, a, a student, of ma a mathematician, telling, telling the professor that the formula doesn't work because I don't get it. Telling the professor, no, you're wrong about the formula because I don't understand it. That, that would be utter foolishness. But the reality is there's a lot of things that we can't understand about God. And so we ought not to bring our pride and say, God, I will only accept something if I can understand it. And furthermore, you don't want a God like that anyways. You can fully understand everything that he does. And so let this, let this reality actually cause us to put our, our hands over our mouth. Be fully humbled by it. So that's the first thing. Second, uh, I think we get duped, uh, I get duped into thinking that uh, grumbling and being anxious, uh, being bitter, actually feels good. And it's helpful. It feels safe. Because here, here's the thing, if we were to embrace this reality that God allows sinful acts those that happen in my own house against me, those that come out of me, those that happen in our community, that God ordains that, somehow I'm going to be left feeling very vulnerable. And there's something that feels good and in control if I can grumble about it, if I can feel anxious about it. Because after all, like when we grumble about our situation, who are we truly grumbling against? If this doctrine is true, then we're grumbling against God himself. And so to actually embrace this, we would have to be saying, God, those people that have sinned against me, well, I don't have to call that good. You, in your wisdom, are always seeking your glory and for my good, ultimately. 
somehow now I, gotta, I have to repackage this and, and understand how I view the world. That's uncomfortable. And I actually feel safer if I can grumble and feel anxious, yeah? It's just a reality. Third, um, we've seen other people wield the truth like this in very unhelpful ways. And the reality is that sometimes when we see someone uh, have a certain belief, uh, take, take for example a lot of people like walking away from the faith or something, or rejecting Christianity because they, they, they hear certain Christians do something or act a certain way, so then they get rid of the whole truth behind them. Say, so, well, well if, if they're like that and they believe that, then what they believe must be false. And we don't want to fall into that trap. And we also don't want to be callous with this truth, right? Maybe you've seen that. I mean, the reality is, is, is if, if somebody's experienced something tragic from the sin of someone else, we don't walk, just walk into the room and say, well, you know, God ordained sin for his mission. And any, t- any type of grieving right now, that's just a lack of faith. Just gotta, like, that's, that's not how we should wield this truth here, right? We, Paul talks about we do grieve, but not as the world grieves. So somehow we have to mix this in, right? Paul says, always sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's, there's a mixture in the Christian. There's a, a, a faith that trusts that God will overturn this, or God is using this. But it doesn't mean we don't grieve. Jesus himself wept at the death of Lazarus. Uh, fourth, I just got two more really fast ones, then we're done here. Um, we want God to be as committed to our temporal comfort as we are. This is the reality. I wake up in the morning... And I am committed to Dan experiencing comfort today. And I just want God to be as committed to that mission as me. This reality tells me that he's not. And that's hard for me to deal with. Now, if I can think about, step back and think logically, I mean, uh, like think, if, if you had a pain in your arm and it needed to be rebroken or something, that's really what needed I want my doctor to be willing to do that to me, right? It's going to be painful. I want him more committed to my long-term good than my temporal good or my temporal comfort, right? I want him more, him or her, I want him more committed to my long-term good and comfort than my temporal, which means he's going to have to re-break it and reposition or whatever. That's going to be painful. But if he's more committed to my like temporal good, he's probably just going to give me some pills. Give me a little shot to, to numb it for a little bit. I don't want that. And so really when we can step back, like we don't want God to just be committed to what we think is comfortable. Uh, and last, uh, I, I'm okay saying that God is like providentially over in control of the positive things. And the, the nice things that happen that are like, you know, I, I just happen to come to faith at a certain time and I ha- just happen to go to this Christian fellowship group and this girl just happened to walk into the fel- Christian fellowship group too, the same time I did, and now we're married. I like that story. I like seeing the providence of God in something like that. I'm even okay seeing the providence of God in natural disaster or something like that. Or like, you know, I can look back uh, when, I, when I got COVID uh, in January, there was sort of like this small window of time where it was like, if I am going to get COVID uh, this winter, this would be the time. 
because otherwise it's going to disrupt my plans. And I got it, like perfect timing. Like, it's, it's like it, it wasn't you know fun for a bit, but it's like that was I can accept that, the natural thing, whatever. But when we're talking about morals, like people, sin, my sin, other people's sin, that it's just a struggle. And so I just need, we need to recognize that and like see this throughout Scripture. And we need to always come back to the cross because, uh, again, that is the place where this doctrine is most clearly seen. So I went from Acts 4 last week. Acts 2, you see a very similar line. Peter uh, proclaiming the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He's looking at the Jewish leaders, talking about Jesus being displayed by miracles and wonders. And he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. And notice what Peter just did there. This Jesus, he was delivered up according to God's plan. God's the one that set that in motion, not you guys. So don't worry about that. God did that. God delivered Jesus up. And then he turns around and says, and you guys killed him. You're responsible so, so who did it? Did God do it or did they do it? Well, it's both, right? It's the, God is the primary cause. They're the secondary cause. But the most horrific day of history, we see this truth proclaimed. That God indeed orders sinful ways to accomplish his mission. And for the church, this is great, great news. It's not always easy. It's not always clear. Sometimes it can be confusing. But God is on a mission to display his glory for the good of his name and for the good of his church. And so we can rest knowing that God is always on that mission for our good. Though we taste bitterness at times, it will be sweet. And so this morning we'll uh, partake of the Lord's Supper and be reminded that this is good news for us because Christ has actually brought us into the covenant so that we can know that God will work all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to purpose, even those things which are very, very bitter. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to partake of the Lord's table. Uh, this is not about perfection, but about direction. This is about walking in faith with Christ. Uh, if you're here and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, believe that he was God in the flesh, the Son of God who took the sins uh, of his people and rose from the dead, you may partake. If you're here this morning and don't believe that, we ask that you not partake. Or if you're here and not walking in repentant faith, we ask that you not partake as well. Um, but please come forward and grab the elements and return to your seats. In the scriptures, we meet a God who is far beyond anything we could ever imagine. In Christians, you have been brought near to him, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Let us be reminded this morning that though we experience much trials and tribulations on our pilgrimage here, on, on our way to the celestial city, but let us be reminded that none of that is God's ultimate judgment upon us. God's judgment for your sin has been fully spent on the blood of Christ. For the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.